You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Anand Kulkarni, who is using Django and Python to create an app building platform called Crowdbotics. Anand, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks so much. Sorry for butchering your name left and right there. <laughs> no problem. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and, and letting people know a little bit more about the platform that we're going to go over today? Yeah, sure thing. So I'm Anand Kulkarni. I'm a computer scientist, builder. Um, I run a company called Crowdbotics. It's a web platform built in Django uh, and lets end users build their own Django and React apps, starting from scratch, generating out all the code, and then running it. Been doing this for about three and a half years. Before that, I was CTO of a tech startup um, in the marketing automation space. And before that, I was an academic computer scientist at uh, UC Berkeley. Very cool. Now, when it comes back to this platform here, you mentioned that it's kind of like the end-to-end solution there, right? It's like it can help you develop your app, and it's also for like setting up the infrastructure and all that, like end-to-end. Is this basically some program that just generates like a, a project for you to use, like an app skeleton, and then you just like put it on your platform? Like, how does this work from the end user's point of view? Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. You know, we looked a lot at some uh, when we started the platform to begin with. We looked a lot at some of the early efforts people had made on projects like Yeoman uh, or Create React App that kind of stand up a basic project skeleton for you, which gets you from zero to one really quickly, which was very exciting for us and which I think saves people a lot of. Um, But we found that those tools kind of stop there and and make you go straight back into the code right away. And it turns out there's a lot more that you may want to do without actually jumping into the actual software layer. Uh, Cradbotics lets you do a lot of things. First, it does let you stand up and generate like a basic boilerplate project um, in a variety of different templates configured for common app types. So if you're building a marketplace, if you're building a um, a SaaS app, um, if you're building a Yelp clone, we have a bunch of backend models and skeleton templates that you can use that um, generate out the Django code that you need, uh, the API endpoints, and the actual um, uh, front ends that you'll use in the app. Um, But then we've also got editors that let you make changes to your Django code without actually writing the code yourself. And the platform will go and make the relevant commits to your uh, GitHub repository and um, commit those changes directly. Very interesting. Yeah, it's a a pretty cool uh, set of ideas. Um, For developers who use the tool so far, uh, and we've seen quite a few, people really like the fact that you can um, move a lot more quickly and then... um, uh, get code that's uh, more or less the same as what you would end up writing by hand without doing all the work of going in and uh, editing your models and your admin by, by hand every time. Okay, so before we get into the tech here, I have one last question about that, just to make sure I'm 100% on this. Like, is there a way for me as a developer to take that code that your platform generated and kind of get it on my machine to where I can use that code independently of your platform if I decided to do that? Like you mentioned you had like a SaaS template. That seems like very valuable to have. Like how, how would that work? Yeah, totally is valuable. Um, and uh, uh, yeah, it's yours to use. For any user who wants to generate out their code base and uh, kind of download it and hack on it on their own, they are welcome to. If they want to go and deploy that out somewhere else, uh, some of our users do that as well. Uh, we've also got our own integrated um, uh, hooks directly into uh, the three uh, major uh, cloud computing platforms out there, Heroku, uh, AWS, and uh, GCP. 
and uh, the code that we generate is dockerized, containerized, um, and it's also got hooks into Terraform, so uh, you can actually use the platform to deploy it out into your um, into those those platforms as well. Uh, or if you want to go and run it yourself, or run it on a DigitalOcean container or something else, you can take the code and uh, go ahead and do that too. Oh man, I'm not even a Django developer, but that interests me just to see the code that gets generated. But uh, going back to your app here, uh, how long has it been up and running for? So um, we have been uh, running for three and a half years. Uh, so uh, January 2017 is when we first came online. Quite a bit of development that's gone into it for, for some time. We've seen about 15,000 apps um, launched on the system so far. So um, number is pretty good, and uh, we see several hundred new apps launched on the platform every week. Well, that's fantastic. So those 15,000 apps, that's people signed up, went through the process, they developed something, and it's also probably deployed, managed by you? Yeah, so uh, those are folks who have gone through the process, um, generated a code base, customized an app. Um, some of those apps are running on our platform today. Um, a small minority of those apps ended up becoming uh, really successful, um, which is great. And then lots of the folks um, also uh, made apps that are hobbyist apps, right? Things that are for a specific purpose inside their organization. Um, if you're an agency developer, people have done builds that they use for their own customers. Um, and then there's uh, stuff that people use inside their organizations, right? So if you happen to be, we see users who are inside companies um, building things that are one-offs. Uh, they run for the purposes of automating some, some chore that they don't want to automate, uh, they want to do right. by hand. Um, that's a, a popular use case as well. A lot of dashboards, some SaaS tools, a lot of mobile backends, uh, some pretty cool stuff built. Um, and uh, uh, it's all Django. Nice. So over those three and a half years, uh, what type of like developer count do we have here? Like, how many people worked on this project? Oh, wow. So three and a half years ago, it was just me um, when we started. Um, we've managed to pull in uh, a much larger uh, team here, uh, and we've actually been uh, successful enough that we have uh, a lot of contractors who um, are basically developers in our community working on the platform today um, with people who are trying to build things on the Cradbotics uh, stack. So. Um, in terms of engineering, we've got about uh, 18 core contributors right now. And then uh, in our community, we see lots and lots of developers. Um, I think the last count put it at a few hundred um, who are working on or working with the stack uh, or working on apps that are uh, attached to the stack. So um, some, some decent numbers so far. But yeah, um, we've had quite a few contributors over the last few years. Um, and uh, that's, been, that's been great to see as well as the person who started the project uh, to be able to pull in a, a team that is likewise enthusiastic about what we're building. Yeah, that is very good to hear. So swinging back to your app here, you know, what motivated you to use Django three and a half years ago? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Um, so I'm going to tell you two things. The, the first reason is um, why we actually uh, started with Django. And the second is why I think it was the right decision. You know, they don't teach Django in, in school. Um, I learned Django uh, because we used it at my last company, which was started back in 2011. And we ended up building a, a pretty decent infrastructure and a pretty decent business. Uh, it was enterprise software, um, but I really got to know Django well uh, during those, those few years. And I really appreciated some of the, um, the choices that it, it lets you make. The, uh, the fact that you get an auto-generated admin panel is fantastic. Um, I love the separation of concerns that models give you. Um, and of course, I think that there is a really rich library of stuff that you get 
uh, just by choosing to use Django because of the batteries included model. Uh, you know, having things like authentication taken care of for, uh, of for you out of the box is great. Uh, Django makes really intelligent choices around uh, security defaults, which matters in enterprise builds. And a lot of development is just a lot faster in Django. Um, so that's what, you know, why I grew to love it um, uh, at, that, at that last company. When we were deciding what stack would be right here um, for Crowdbotics, um, Django was a first choice because I was familiar with it, and it's always a good idea to um, build for serious projects uh, as opposed to hobbyist educational projects um, to build on a stack that you know. It turned out it was the right decision simply because um, of the factors I mentioned, right? The uh, ease of creating admin panels um, means that a whole bunch of common use cases are taken care of for you out of the box. Django's approach to APIs turns out to be extremely extensible for us um, and good for our users, which is why we're able to be uh, used so widely as a uh, mobile backend. Django REST framework makes a lot of things really easy. And then Django's rich library of stuff turns out to be important. So one of the approaches we've taken when we let our users um, build apps is to point them at known solutions from the Django universe uh, wherever we can. So um, I have looked at uh, a lot of Django libraries, um, and I'm really happy to see that there are robust, good, uh, like well-supported and well-tested Django solutions for a huge category of problems that you encounter uh, when you're trying to build a product, which means that um, when people ask, like, how do I build X on Crowdbotics, right? Like, a good example is, you know, social login, right? How do I get, how do I get Google login working? Well, uh, I don't have to say, let's go build a custom feature. I say, well, you know, there's, there's these two great libraries, Django Social Auth and, and Django All Auth. And, like, here are the ones that, here are the ways that you can make those work really quickly just by dropping them in as a, as a supported library. So that's some of the reasons I love Django. Um, big proponent of Django as a framework, even as we have seen other models emerge for development, because it is so mature and so well-tested, um, and because so much stuff that you want to be able to do becomes really easy inside Django, um, simply because of that big uh, uh, and mature ecosystem. Right, yeah, you can't really go wrong picking a framework where you have over a decade of community support I didn't even think about that from that point of view. Like, I'm sure folks are asking you all the time, like, what library should I use? And provided some great answers around that. Now, going back to the Django admin, though, I mean, are you really using that in your project here, in like in production? Oh my gosh, we use it extensively, uh, and we generate and uh, give our users tools to create and use Django admins on their own apps extensively. I think that there's there's a couple things that Django does really well, really quickly on that admin um, that should make it a good choice for people when they are thinking about for projects how they are administering those projects. You know, whenever we sit down to to build applications, right? We think a lot and spend a lot of time on what the true um, end user facing views uh, should be and look like and how to make those rich. But there's always this other category of users we have to support on apps who are not people who care about polish, they're like, you know, our internal support team um, or our internal engineering team needing to go and, and make, um, you know, authentication and control updates. Um, and while we can and eventually uh, do end up building um, really custom views for those folks as well, for a huge portion of the life cycle of applications, we don't need those guys to have really distinct uh, interfaces. 
we can just drop them into the Django admin, uh, set some controls and set some uh, user permissions appropriately and make it um, really easy for those folks to use the applications to do their jobs uh, without needing to write a lot of extra code. Um, and I think that that is one of the key strengths in Django. So uh, yeah, we do use that. Um, we use it to uh, help manage our own operations here. Uh, and we also encourage customers to use it extensively to uh, manage their own applications. So uh, yeah, um, I think there's some stuff that it leaves to be desired. Of course, the default Django admin is not very pretty, um, but that's a small, uh, a small drawback compared to what it gives you. Right. So it sounds like it follows a philosophy of like, it's good enough, like maybe not great for customer facing, but great, great for internal stuff where, you know, spending a lot of time to create that super polished one, it takes a lot of time that could be developing features instead. Absolutely right. Um, I think it's probably the wrong call to make that uh, admin interface something you'd give to a lot of your customers. Uh, but I think it's 100% the right call to give that to your internal support team, to your admin team, and to uh, anybody else who is going to be using your app uh, where you want to save time and not build a bunch of extra stuff for them. Right. Now, going back to some other Django features here, are you taking advantage of Django apps? Like, is this a monolith with a bunch of Django apps, or is it broken up into microservices? Okay, good question. So, um, you know, Crowdbotics is also built using Crowdbotics. Um, so the same organizational philosophy that we apply to our own app um, is the one that we apply to the apps that customers generate using the platform. One of the most confusing things about Django for me when I first came in was the idea of apps. Uh, because it's not really well, it's not super well defined in a lot of the documentation what an app is. Um, and while I think it has a lot to like in terms of the concept of modularity, I don't think the ecosystem uh, has really taken a unified view that apps are the right way to go when developing Django products. And so as a result, um, Crowdbotics itself, uh, we're architected as a, um, a, with an SPA, right? So we've got um, view and React uh, components sitting out in their own uh, separate repo. And then everything's being fed off of um, APIs, which are going through Django REST framework um, behind the scenes. And then we do use apps um, as a uh, organizational structure inside Crowdbotics um, with cleanly separated models, views, um, and uh, to some extent uh, that is limited template handling each one, but uh, it's, it's really a, um, you know, a different abstraction. Um, so I think I would regard this as a, uh, it's certainly a, a service-oriented architecture, but um, uh, the back end is a single repo um, with a bunch of uh, separate models and model structures in there. Um, when we have customers generate apps on the platform, um, those apps are generated out um, with a series of models. Um, you can define the model, you can define which model parameters are API accessible, you can define uh, which model elements are admin accessible, um, and then once that's published out, all those APIs are generated for you, and then you can consume that off of the React or React Native front end um, that the system also generates. Uh, I believe that qualifies both sides as service-oriented architectures. Um, you know the backends are not running on lambdas or anything. They're all uh, uh, they're all running inside a, you know a single a single uh, container. Okay. Now, when it comes to the platform itself, though, that API backend that you've developed that is that one repo, one application. You don't have like you know ten of those services out there. 
That's correct. Yeah. So um, there's actually really, um, I think I would say, uh, we've we've taken the idea here of uh, logical separation of user apps that are generated um, out to its logical conclusion. So um, every customer is running on their own uh, isolated instance. Every user is running on their own isolated repo um, with their own code base and their own uh, distinct uh, deploy pathway, um, which is great because users can just grab what they've got and go without any uh, additional work. There's not a bunch of shared infrastructure that they're beholden to. Um, and you know, that's the same approach taken by Heroku themselves and by uh, AWS and GCP as well. Uh, yeah, the isolation is, is pretty large in that sense. Okay, now for your app here, the back end, do you know roughly like how big is this application in terms of lines of code or like maybe number of apps? And if you want to go into that, even like you know, if you can rattle off some of those app names, like how do you have this thing set up? Yeah, sure. Um, let me just pop open GitHub and I'll, I'll tell you what we see here. So. Uh, I'll tell you off the top of my head, we've got about 111,000 lines of code um, in the back end itself. Um, looking at the major structures here for how we've laid out the, uh, the models, major models include, or major apps that we've got here uh, include um, our payments infrastructure, we've got one for that, um, our project infrastructure, which manages um, everything around customer, customer projects. We have uh, Separate subfolders here organized for um, our static content, which is not uncommon, for our uh, tests and testing framework. And then we've got, um, we do a significant stuff around user management, so we've got uh, quite a bit on the users. And then uh, places for our, um, our core models as well, um, places that uh, we need to think a lot about um, what those users are actually uh, building uh, and how to enable users to build in that way. So uh, yeah, those are the major models here, uh, and the, excuse me, the major uh, apps that we've organized the product into. I think there's probably more we can do to clean up the internal organization of, um, of the code base. Um, after three and a half years, unless you are taking really aggressive steps to prune stuff out, um, projects like this in Django have a tendency to get a little unwieldy. Um, nothing wrong with that, it's just a little bit more uh, learning learning time for users um, when they first orient themselves to the code base. And I think that's a, uh, you know, a necessary, uh, necessary pain in any software development project. Yeah, I mean, once, once you start dealing with like 100,000 plus lines of code, there's no getting around some, or, you know, onboarding process. Yeah. It's never going to be instant. Yeah, you know, the good news is I think that the, the apps that we generate end up looking a lot cleaner. Um, and I'm looking at some of the sample, like the sample structures that have been produced right now. Um, and it's, it's pretty well organized, right? You've got separate directories for your API, for your models, for your schema, um, for templates if you choose to use those. And um, all of that is um, a clean way to go. There's also a separate area to keep your SPA um, or your front-end code, which is a perpetual like FAQ for new folks in Django, um, how to get that, that connection to happen correctly. So in that sense, um, for generated apps, uh, there's a lot less code and it's a lot easier to understand. Right. Now, going back to your large code base there, you know, speaking about consistency, do you use any tools to help you out there like Black or Flake 8 or anything like that? Um, so we use a lot for automated uh, checking and, and uh, data code analysis. Um, the big stuff we are using right now is primarily for linting, if that answers your question. You know, the like style checking is, is just a good way to stay sane. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily 
answering the question you're asking though. Um, oh no, it is for sure. Like which linting tools do you use? Um, so we use separate linters for uh, both the, uh, the, the front end that we've got and the back end. On the back end, it's, it's uh, a tool called PyLint, uh, which you probably know. Um, <laughs> and then uh, for the, uh, the front end, we use a, a variety of stuff. Uh, ESLint is the, the big one, though. I don't know. It took a while before we actually lintified the code base, um, started linting regularly. I think it was at least a year before uh, anyone insisted on it. Um, I wish we'd done it sooner, <laughs> but you know, once you've done it, um, and once people know the style guide that they're supposed to be adhering to, um, it doesn't take that much to, to change things. Yeah, I can only imagine after a year, there's like, oh, by the way, there's 38,612 warnings to take care of. Well, so this was a learning from my first company where we waited quite a long time before we started enforcing consistent style practices. Um, and it was a push because it's never a product priority from from management to say like, hey, let's let's go prettify our code base. Um, you really have to make the case that it's going to make your life easier and uh, reduce downstream cycle time. And then once you do it, um, yeah, you're in, you're in great shape. Then there's, uh, you know, the separate question of code coverage and automated testing. That one became a lot more important for us early on in this company. Um, like our automated deployment pipeline had to work in a more or less bulletproof fashion because customers were counting on it. And then catching errors um, in a continuous development cycle uh, becomes super important. So we have quite a bit of automated testing going on as well. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that in due time. But before you switch to that, uh, do you know of any other libraries that your API backend uses that, you know, it really helped you create the type of app that you're creating faster or better? Like, what are some good Django libraries or Python libraries that you use? Okay, so um, there's some that I feel strongly enough about that um, we include by default in every app that we generate, and we use them. it's because we use them extensively ourselves, right? So I'll give you the short list. So Django REST framework, uh, it's amazing. Um, everyone should use it, in my opinion. There is a, a prominent uh, Django alternative that um, some folks look at, but I think that uh, it is rapidly becoming, Django REST framework is, is rapidly becoming the standard default approach that everyone is using. Um, so uh, it's great. It makes it a breeze to construct uh, APIs. Um, I love the tight coupling to models because it lets you think about your app uh, not in terms of how do I build APIs and how do I make them accessible to users, but in terms of how do I construct my models and my business logic and the API layer is taken care of. I also love the fact that permissioning is automatic. Um, it inherits directly from um, Django's own default permissions model, which is great. Uh, you don't need to worry about the wrong people getting access to data because you've already set this up when you've defined your user groups inside Django at the outset. Um, so it's really powerful. Uh, I love it. And it um, has made, it actually made the transition. We did transition at one point from using Django templates into um, our own in-house SPA. Um, it made that transition really easy and, and relatively painless. Um, as painless as that kind of transition could be. Um, it, it still was a bunch of work, but it could have been, you know, very bad. Um, so that's one. Uh, the other one is uh, we love Django all auth. Um, and to some extent, we also like Django social auth for social authentication. Um, it's another library that works really well um, to try and speed things up in terms of um, 
task that is often tricky for people, which is figuring out how to connect into, um, for example, GitHub, which we do uh, as one of our supported login methods. Nobody really likes reading all the docs from uh, each of these uh, companies to figure out how they've set up their providers. It's way easier to just install Django all off and check the boxes that you want and add the file, uh, add the lines that you need to your settings file and uh, hit go. <laughs> and, and that's pretty much what it takes. So uh, we like that. Our users tell us that it's really great that they can you know, pick from a whole bunch of different social providers uh, to log in with. And it's, you know, it's, it's thanks to us picking the right library here. Um, so all off gives you, gosh, I think the number is like 20 different providers you can pick from um, that they support, uh, which is cool. There's one more that I'll mention, um, uh, which is really good for payments, um, which matters for any, any internet company that's trying to make a living off of what they're build, building. It's a library called DJ Stripe, um, Django Stripe, basically. Uh, it, uh, makes Stripe administration a breeze. Um, it's pretty powerful. It supports most of what Stripe does, uh, which is great. Um, and it's fun to work with. So um, I've enjoyed that one as well. So what, is, what, is, what makes that library different than just using the Python library that Stripe provides you? Okay, so uh, good question. Um, so Python's, uh, so uh, let me mention here, we're a, Stripe, we're a Stripe developer partner. So we've um, looked at a lot of different ways of doing this, um, both inside uh, Django, inside Python, and inside um, some of the other languages that um, uh, Stripe has done their own uh, API documentation around. Um, so doing this stuff directly inside uh, Python and Stripe is not hard. Um, you can always write your own Python, uh, Python uh, code using their examples to do things like uh, register a credit card, um, create a payment. Uh, send an invoice. Uh, it turns out that what's important about billing is not just about carrying out these individual transactional items uh, or these atomic activities. It's um, the idea that you're going to have to administer a relationship um, with a user who is buying something from you over a long period of time, which requires connections to your other models inside your application. So as a simple example, right? Um, while you can store the credit card of a user using Python directly, it's also handy if you have um, an administrative interface that tells you uh, the history of transactions that a user has had, that makes that searchable, and that allows you to um, uh, systematically uh, look up things like, who are my biggest customers? Um, so DJ Stripe lets you do a lot of this stuff pretty easily by giving you um, a full, uh, a set of models that go way beyond um, the stuff you might think about when you are constructing Stripe integrations using Python by hand. So it's not that you can't do this stuff uh, inside Python. You definitely can, but it's a lot easier if somebody is taking care of 80% of the business thinking for you about the things that you might need to use. A lot of the stuff that DJ Stripe offers, you might not use out of the box. You'll just see the admin controls pop up. But on the day when you realize that uh, some situation requires you to go in and make changes, you're going to be really glad that um, DJ Stripe has already implemented it for you and it's just a, a couple things you need to toggle. Interesting. So is that like creating local models on your end that basically syncs what's on Stripe but locally for you and then in your admin you can look it up? Yeah, that's a good example. Um, so syncing a bunch of Stripe objects you might not think about to uh, sync in advance uh, is one example. Um, another is thinking about um, 
ways to um, map the full set of Stripe APIs into Django objects that you can interface with, which is another one. Um, so like as a, as a simple example, uh, DJ Stripe lets you obviously handle the basics around charges, accounts, customers, um, payment methods, and so on. Um, it also handles stuff uh, like tax rates, um, which of course Stripe handles very well, but which hardly anyone uses uh, in internet sales until they realize they're required to. Um, and that's a point where uh, it's nice that um, DJ Stripe lets you interface with this out of the box as opposed to making you go write more code. Okay, so maybe now we can uh, switch gears maybe towards your front end here. You mentioned that you are using Vue and React and you also originally made this like a server-side template app. Like, first of all, like what made you switch over to using the API backend? Yeah, great question. Um, okay, so, um, you know, we've talked a little bit about what, what the Crabbotics platform um, does today. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an app builder, lets you build APIs on the back end, lets you build front-end SPAs on the front-end and mobile apps on the front-end. Um, when we started out, we were just a back-end builder. Um, and we said the reason is that back-ends are harder than front-ends, um, so let's make it easy for people to build back-ends very quickly. And as part of that, we set up uh, in the beginning a really simplistic front-end ourselves. Um, as we got more and more users showing up, um, we started to hear increasingly often that people wanted to build uh, React uh, or visual front-ends, which means that uh, we had to build a richer tool for them to use. Because as great as uh, Django's default templating system is, it's not really optimized for um, Kind of rich interactive uh, interactions that you might knew, uh, you might need when you're using some doing something that's highly visual. I think it's really efficient at at uh, representing and organizing structured data, um, which is where Django's template model shines. So that was the main impetus to go from um, Django uh, templates as our front end system to um, Vue.js, which is ultimately what we used. The place we use React, um, so Crabbotics is um, on the front end, uh, itself built in Vue, but it's a React and React Native builder, um, meaning you can drag and drop uh, components in a WYSIWYG editor. Uh, you can hook those up to APIs, um, including ones generated by the back end, and then all of that gets um, translated directly into Git commits into somebody's repo. So what that means is that uh, the set of front-end capabilities that we need to construct um, is pretty extensive, and you know, a good part of our efforts in the last uh, last 18 months, especially, have been focused on improving those capabilities. But it also means that a lot of what we wanted to construct um, was better expressed using uh, uh, libraries that are available in JavaScript, um, especially in Vue, as opposed to material that is um, already existing in the uh, the uh, the Django community. So that was the motivation for the change. Um, certainly it was the right one. Our, our current SPA um, is pretty robust. Um, certainly the apps that customers are building and users are building on the platform um, are super robust and uh, it would have been hard to make those edits um, you know using a, uh, uh, a Django, Django template system and still keep keeping our code base relatively sane. Right. Yeah. I would imagine this app is probably pretty large, right? In terms of, you know, libraries you've written and lines of code. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so the backend app itself was a hundred and, uh, it's over a hundred thousand lines of code. Um, the front end app itself, um, 
uh, is also pretty big. I'm going to guess it's around 30 to 40k um, uh, lines just on its own. Um, so there's been quite a bit of stuff that uh, has gone into it that's kind of separate from um, what's what's been happening on the back end. And getting a clean separation of concerns um, is important um, to avoid going going totally crazy. Yeah, I'm just thinking like imagine if that were just like jQuery spaghetti, it would be pretty hard to maintain. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've built I've built apps in that old model before and you know, in the days before we had uh, really good frameworks um, uh, for the front end, I think that was uh, that was a preferred model of development and you really quickly lose sight of your your organizational patterns and thinking and you can get by doing it for a long time, but it's not fun. Right. So do you have all of these assets now managed by Webpack or something else? Yeah, it's Webpack right now. Basically, there is a, um, like everything that goes through a build process right now is piped through Circle, and then everything is getting bundled up um, using Webpack, and then the uh, the sequence of, of uh, bundling tools that uh, kind of go along with that in various pieces. Um, and being primarily a Django backend guy, uh, I'll say that uh, the system works relatively cleanly, um, and I, I appreciate uh, uh, the fact that I don't have to think about it too much uh, when I look at the, uh, the system, um, since uh, most of it is abstracted away um, uh, by the fact that most of the heavy lifting is done by the, the platform itself as opposed to uh, by me. Um, and we spent quite a bit of time figuring out how to get the, the DevOps pipeline to work well. Um, just to make that bundling process uh, happen smoothly. Right. So is all that front-end code written with TypeScript or just regular JavaScript? No, it's done in TypeScript, yeah. Um, and part of the reasoning was um, the front-end folks on the team uh, <laughs> all thought that uh, it was a preferred way to go. Um, so uh, I, I took their word for it. Um, and, you know, as a, as a Jenganista myself, um, I'll say that uh, like there are pieces from uh, what I know about TypeScript that um, uh, are nice, um, uh, and then there's other stuff that um, um, I take their word for it on <laughs> in that sense. So maybe now we can go over the rest of your tech stack. So we know we're using Django on the back end there, but what do you use for your primary database? Are you using Celery and Redis, Docker, anything like that? Yes, all of that. But let me um, let me tell. Talk, uh, I guess I'll talk it through an order of importance, and then we can talk about some of the reasoning that went into this, right? Um, so our basic stack here is it's Django on the back end. Um, we're running it on Heroku, the main app itself, and we have been since uh, since day one. Um, data store is Postgres. Um, it's scaled nicely for us. Uh, Heroku um, has uh, uh, a lot to love about it, um, and I think that they are philosophically aligned with us in a couple of ways. Obviously, 12-factor development is the way to go, um, but they also have this philosophy of going from zero to one very quickly, uh, which we like, helping users see stuff really quickly. Um, so um, our stack right now, we're using um, uh, a couple of fairly large dynos. We do Celery, we do Redis as well. Um, I mean, I mean, excuse me, a minority of our customer apps um, uh, have a similar setup, so by default, the apps that are spun up um, on Crowdbotics and hosted, the backend is hosted on Heroku as well, although users have the option of doing uh, AWS or GCP. Those apps by default have a uh, Postgres database attached. 
I think there is a very strong case that uh, Postgres is the right solution that people should think about as their default uh, if they're building most kinds of applications today with maybe a small number of exceptions um, uh, depending on uh, your use case. We do use Docker, um, but it's not super important for us. The reason we use Docker is um, attached to the apps that we've got, it's in the interest of portability between clouds. So because we offer users the option to go from um, running it on the Crowdbotics slash Heroku model that we offer by default and these other commercial clouds or running it locally on premise, um, containerizing the thing seemed like an easy solution uh, and a good way to get users to feel good about um, the fact that they could make that uh, switch really easily. We also have Terraform in there too. Um, Terraform, if you are not familiar with it, is basically a multi-cloud deployment stuff for infrastructure as code. So you define the different pieces you want on a particular cloud solution. You save it as a file that gets committed into your repo, and then you get to run that wherever. Um, and uh, after a little debugging, uh, you get to automatically provision stuff on a variety of server, a variety of clouds. Um, we do use that extensively um, to help users go from uh, one cloud to another. Um, we also use it internally, um, which is great too. In terms of our t automated testing and our build pathways, um, for a long time we used Heroku CI, uh, which is Heroku's own CI tool. Um, we also use pretty extensively Heroku's um, pipelines feature. Um, at one point we were using Heroku pipelines um, as our main uh, offering for customers too, so that customers could have their own staging and production servers out of the gate. Customers didn't actually need that as much as we thought they would. Like, very few developers um, have told us, you know, that they have difficulty running, uh, running with Heroku's own systems. Um, so uh, we don't offer that one as much. And then Heroku's CI offering, you know, we ultimately replaced it with uh, Circle CI um, because uh, it turns out that we need to do much more than just uh, a, um, a specific set of build operations on that infrastructure. We were also doing things to compile and deploy mobile builds and push stuff up to um, various app stores for customers. So that made us switch to a, a bigger and more robust uh, engine at the end of the day. Not to bash Heroku CI, which is pretty decent, but um, Circle is a more uh, more robust and efficient tool, um, probably because it's their main product. Okay, there's a lot of good stuff to unwind there, uh, but let's start with mentioning how you're using Postgres. So are you using any specific Postgres features like full text search or no? Yeah, we are. Um, so uh, full text search is one that we use. Um, there are a few instances where you do this, but like when our users are making apps, there are a lot of artifacts that are associated with those apps, right? Some of those are descriptive, like, you know, here is what this particular screen is supposed to do. Here is what this model is supposed to do. Um, those are things that live inside the Git code base as well, but they're not necessarily structured in a way that make it super easy and effective to look up. Um, the volume of search that we do is restricted typically to us searching across our entire customer base uh, to find things that we need for particular activities, like, um, you know, a user is, is, we are seeing this error in the logs in Sentry. Uh, let's go ahead and, and see which, uh, which app threw that error by searching through the entire uh, set of um, models that we've got descriptions for. We also do things like library search, which are a little bit more exhaustive. 
for a long time, we have been running mirrors of PyPy, um, the Python package library, uh, because we're interested in finding what the right libraries are to recommend to people. One of the things that we are working on as a um, kind of feature in progress is the ability to automatically monitor and um, make updates to uh, our list of recommendations um, for which packages claiming to be effective solutions for specific niche problems, right? Like a good example I give is um, there are about 26 different packages uh, inside the, uh, the PyPy repository that uh, claim to provide uh, enterprise SAML integration capabilities, which is you know, a fancy kind of enterprise uh, authentication. And it's interesting for us to be able to look at all of those and, and return to a user, you know, here are the, the packages that do it, and you know, here's how, uh, how many stars each one of those has on GitHub. That's a place where you know, using Postgres search is a, uh, a pretty good solution for us. I think that um, Postgres is also just really powerful uh, on Heroku um, as a Django combo um, because of two things that Heroku offers on their Postgres stack that make it really uh, nice. The number one feature is uh, Heroku Data Clips, um, which lets you basically make SQL queries against your live database without logging into that database. Um, not uh, running destructive actions, uh, mind you, but like setting up reports. That saves developers so much time and effort when people ask them like, hey, can you produce a report that tells me how many users showed up in the last week? Well, you know, you can go write a bunch of code or you can just uh, run a query directly on a Heroku data clip on your Postgres database out of the box. And that feature, uh, both individually and um, as a person running a, um, a platform, uh, have proven invaluable uh, to have over time. Uh, the other one is, of course, Heroku has really rich and automatic backups um, on Postgres that uh, we've been able to offer by extension to our own customers, which is great. Nice. Okay. So maybe uh, switching over to the Celery setup. You know, besides the obvious things like shooting out emails or maybe doing like API calls, do you have any interesting tasks going on in Celery? And do you use like periodic tasks as well? Yeah, so we do have interesting stuff that happens there quite a lot. Um, and I'll also mention that some of this is material we've experimented with using AWS Lambda for as well. Um, but the, the most interesting thing we do uh, inside, uh, inside uh, workers is uh, code generation, right? So, you know, Crabbotics is a... Um, a system for, for generating apps. Uh, that means that when users carry out actions in the front end um, in our SPA uh, that correspond to changes that, that are gonna happen in code, sometimes there are more involved things we have to do to translate that into, into actual code. So if you go in and edit your model inside our API, your user model uh, inside our front end, we bundle that up, um, uh, push that to the back end via the API, then the backend has to turn that into an actual code change uh, and into a GitHub uh, pull request that gets added back into your code base. Um, that can take some time if your ask is complex. So that's better delegated to a, a worker. Um, on the front end, it can be super complex because if you're tweaking a front end uh, element in a WYSIWYG editor, that might generate changes in like four or five different files um, inside a React component. Um, so, uh, or rather to make changes to a React component. And so all that is better done in a background job. Um, that way you can async it and then the user gets, you know, their, 
they get to go on with their lives and, and come back uh, 5, 10, 20 seconds later um, to uh, you know, see the result. Let's see, periodic jobs. Um, billing, of course, uh, is being done periodically using that system. We do periodic error checks uh, using Celery. Um, there's automated tests that run on intervals for things that are integration oriented or uptime checks. Wait, hold on. Sorry to interrupt you. What do you mean by uh, periodic error checking? Do you just like hit endpoints looking for maybe errors or? Uh, it's not, yeah, it's not like a Netflix chaos monkey exactly. It's, uh, it's that we just run our automated test suite on intervals um, to verify, for example, that um, mission critical pathways are still alive. So for example, Every day at 5 p.m., we were running a end-to-end -end check uh, to see if what we've deemed is our top uh, top 15 different uh, most important pathways are still alive. For example, um, can I can I still uh, register for a new account? Can I still st scaffold and stand up an, a new application on Crowdbotics? Can I make can I still um, you know upgrade and downgrade effectively? Um, it's not that those things aren't being tested for with unit tests uh, and, and tests that are happening at build time, because they are, but when you have dependencies across um, a whole bunch of different systems, some of which are services that we don't own, having an integration test that runs um, uh, on a periodic basis gives us an extra layer of control um, and lets us kind of know in advance before a user reports an error or before Sentry encounters errors that something is going wrong. Um, and I think when apps get complicated like this, uh, with a lot of different places they can go and um, parts uh, and dependencies, it's useful to have those kind of periodic checks running. There are other approaches you could take, but you know that's the one that worked for us. Yeah, for sure. Kind of interesting to see that you have that end-to-end -end test to check if people can upgrade or downgrade. That's like actually making a, like a live Stripe payment there or no? Uh, no, it, it doesn't use a, a live payment model. Uh, we use we use test keys for that, but um, it's a test where you know the 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 likely source of failure there is not in Stripe, um, but rather in one of the uh, you know rapid changes that were made during during the build process. Um, but yeah, it's uh, for those cases we use uh, we use test mode keys. Hmm. So for that end to end setup, then is that just not running on your real or production server, but instead like a QA server that has the the test keys activated? Um, so we do have staging servers we use for integration tests like this, yeah. Um, it's basically a clone of the actual uh, the prod setup. Um, there are categories of errors which won't be caught by this, stuff that might be unique to production, um, especially stuff that's related to the, the number or types or size of data that's in there. Um, but because this is an intensive job, you know, there's a good reason not to run this on prod either. So lots of good stuff to talk about here. Well, when it comes to that Stripe setup, I mean, I would imagine your billing setup is probably pretty complicated, right? It's like people can sign up for, I guess, per month or maybe annually and then switch plans. But do you also offer like, you know how most cloud providers like AWS or DigitalOcean, you know, they have a way that you can just spin up a server for two hours and then you only get billed for those two hours. Do you have any type of billing like that set up or no? Yeah, great question. So, um, you know, you're talking about basically monthly subscription usage versus, um, what, what Stripe calls metered usage, right? Which is like, you pay for the time that you use on a given resource. Um, so Crowdbotics thinks about the set of offerings we've got um, from a billing perspective uh, in a few different ways. We have the monthly offering, which is, you know, you can do free, monthly, annual payments for uh, essentially running your app. Um, 
on a predefined set of uh, uh, set of time. Um, we also have some things that you can purchase from Crowdbotics transactionally um, on a metered basis. Uh, the most notable one of that is if you are buying, um, we have certain uh, uh, members of our community that you can contract with directly to get stuff built. It's uh, essentially a, um, a paid development contract um, or a paid support contract. Um, that time is being metered by the hour. Um, and uh, it's pay for what you use in most cases. Um, and yeah, that, that part um, is transacted uh, uh, on a unit basis. You know, we looked at other models as well over the course of the last three years, and this is the one that we've settled with because customers are pretty comfortable with it. Um, you know, they, they can uh, see what, uh, uh, what things cost pretty clearly at the point of sale. Um, we looked at doing things like charging per like line of code or charging per model or charging per like unit and all that just makes things really uncomplicated and felt felt kind of inelegant, um, especially because you want to give away a lot of the value that um, you allow people to use in a tool like this for free, right? You want people to, to go and build cool stuff. Um, so we said, yeah, let's just make the free the free offering really big and robust and then have subscription and support plans um, that get paid monthly and uh, and or uh, as they are used. Um, and it seems to be a workable model. Um, certainly customers have compared it so far very favorably to like the usual approaches of, um, of building applications. Right. Yeah, I'm glad to see that you didn't go with like lines of code as being the billing metric because then you would get troll users like me who would just develop the entire app as like one line of code. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the thing. When you're building stuff that's going to be used by developers, like you, you want to be uh, honest and fair, but you also like, you should know that uh, if you leave any, any kind of weirdness or gaps in your, uh, in your offering, people are just going to figure out like the way to do it. Right. Um, uh, so you definitely don't want to do things that are too far outside the norm of what like uh, what people think is is fair to pay for and charge for. Right. Yeah, that would be for me like the ultimate bike shedding experience. Like I develop my app normally, but then develop a tool that minimizes it to one app and then give it to you, and then yeah, all that fun stuff. <laughs> now going back to uh, what you said about Heroku, how you know a lot of their things align very well with your own like business philosophies. So it sounds like you know you have the capability to spin up these servers. Pretty much anywhere. I mean, you mentioned AWS and Google Cloud and Heroku, but like, what made you use Heroku for your own stuff when you have that capability of going like straight onto AWS? You know, three years ago when we started, we didn't have access to uh, AWS in the same way that we do today, because I was most familiar with Heroku based on the previous work I'd done building my last company on Heroku. Now that we have uh, a really large number of instances uh, that we manage on Heroku. And now that we have much more familiarity with the AWS ecosystem and much more support for interacting with the AWS ecosystem, we may choose to move our own default over to AWS simply because the pricing is much more favorable, uh, both in terms of being able to get um, spot instances uh, and being able to control at a pretty granular level how much uh, CPU usage you are uh, paying for. Uh, which is nice. And we'll look at that over the course of the next uh, next few months. Okay. Now, I know you're not going to really be able, you know, you're not going to be able to go into like how much you pay per month on Heroku, but 
Can you give like a ballpark maybe of how many dinos and workers you have? Not to the exact, but maybe like between, I don't know, 200 and 400 or something like that. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll tell you that I, I look over our, our Heroku bill every month <laughs> with, with, a, with, a, with a sense of, with a sense of uh, you know, nobody is, nobody is thrilled to review the Heroku bill. Um, it's a sense of uh, knowing that I think we can improve it. We're in the, um, uh, we've seen it go, go into the low five figures. Uh, so, uh, that's, you know, that's enough that I think we'll, we'll look at changing it, um, simply because it's gonna, it's gonna go, uh, up as people, um, use the system more, um, not down. At any given time, we're running, uh, I think we're, we, we routinely run up against the Heroku limits for the number of, uh, dinos we are, uh, allowed to have. Um, and actually they've been great about, um, working with us to, uh, support expanding those limits. Um, but yeah, you know, we run, we run, um, thousand dinos in any given month, um, you know, uh, might be active at a given time, um, something like that. So, um, we are probably using a, a fairly large number of these. Um, I think many of those are also simply because the defaults for Heroku end up, uh, consuming a decent amount of, uh, dino capacity. You know, it's not, uh, it's not automatically, uh, managed uh, unless you do some extra work to do so right now you know at the start of the show kind of you hinted that every single user who signs up kind of gets their own dedicated not hardware exactly because you know you're not running bare metal but are you spinning up separate dynos then for every single customer that you have yep every customer gets their own dyno their own database their own separate git repository um would that even work on aws too like you'd give them their own ec2 instance or um we would think about it yeah um but i think we'd uh, if we were to do this in the naive way, uh, we'd do the same thing. Um, so part of the philosophy here was that um, we wanted customers to be able to just not make changes and scale things up. There is an argument here maybe that um, like we should do the more conventional SaaS thing, which is you bundle everybody into the smallest number of shared resources. Um, but we've got a small number of customers, um, like people who end up paying us, um, whose apps become really successful and consume a lot of resources. And uh, we made the decision early on that we would just try and help those folks scale up really easily as opposed to um, trying to optimize on the other end. We may uh, you know, reevaluate that depending on um, how, uh, how a transition to AWS ends up looking. You know, the switch to from Heroku to AWS, it's, it's not super easy um, after you've gone pretty far inside uh, the Heroku ecosystem, which is to Heroku's credit because, you know, they've done a lot to make sure that there is uh, good value for the lock-in that you get. AWS uh, has a steeper learning curve and a lot more that you have to figure out. It's correspondingly cheaper. <laughs> um, and the savings don't really come from sharing instances as much as they do from... Uh, the ability to buy into spot resources and to uh, optimize your um, uh, your cost in that way, which is pretty pretty good. Yeah, it seems like a like a very tricky problem to solve, right? It's like imagine if I were a developer on your platform, and my app is not super popular because it just came out. You might put me on like I don't know, like a single server or something like that. But what happens if I I don't know get on the front page of Reddit or Hacker News and something goes crazy and I have way more load than normal? It sounds like maybe my app would blow up because it's not, you know, it's only on that one server. I know technically maybe if it's one server, it can withstand that, but you know what I'm getting at, right? It's like, how would you guarantee that the user's traffic will be able to scale up without them having to worry about it? Like allocating, okay, now I want five servers instead of one. Yeah, so that's a good question. On AWS, I think that would be a, a harder question. Um, on Heroku, we actually manage that for our users. 
because we have seen users get on you know hacker news or um featured in in a major uh media outlet and and get blown up um we tend to monitor for that um the apps don't go down we uh as part of the sla with customers keep the app up so we have to think a lot about that question um and those are places where at least for us running on heroku today the answer is really easy right you just set the dynos to auto scale um, which is something our user doesn't need to understand or know about, but um, is a really nice thing to be able to offer. Um, and for users whose apps um, are high traffic or mission critical, um, or just happen to get lucky, right, and get a spike in traffic one day, that's awesome. Um, that's uh, you know, and that's an argument to stay on Heroku for us, as opposed to you know going into AWS where it's not that you can't set up capabilities to scale and to fail over, but where you have to think about it a little bit more, uh, a little bit more cautiously. Yeah, for sure. So for now, you know, all of your stuff infrastructure wise is on Heroku. Do you maybe want to get into like what type of Heroku add-ons you use? You don't have to get into like specific tier numbers, but like what you're using for transactional email and like logging and all that fun stuff. Yeah. Um, I think it's actually worth mentioning because, um, this is another instance of, uh, uh, it's a self-replicating structure, right? When you generate an app on Crowdbotics, uh, you end up inheriting the same choices that we have made for a lot of this stuff, um, which I think is is great because most of those choices are probably right to to the degree that you can be right about a context, uh, a technical choice in this context. So we are using uh, uh, SendGrid for transactional emails, uh, which is great. Um, we love it. We are using Sentry for error tracking and bug reporting. Uh, also great. Uh, paper trail for logging, which is good. Um, those are probably the three that um, become uh, best understood. Heroku doesn't have an official plugin for this, but um, we use uh, a Django tool called White Noise um, for static hosting on S3, um, which is the default solution. Um, uh, I wish Heroku were better at that, but They've gotten by without it, and everyone knows what the right way to go is, so that's the way that we go as well. I think those are probably the three biggest add-ons that we use um, uh, in terms of uh, stuff that we look at routinely and, and recommend to our own users as well. Right, and then you have the obvious ones like Postgres and Redis, but any other ones that are, might be interesting or no? Uh, I think that probably covers it. Um, Heroku's got a really rich ecosystem of add-ons, but um, those are the ones that I end up looking at the most often. Um, which is why I, I can recommend them with some confidence. Okay, so do you also have some type of CDN sitting in front of those static files, something like Cloudflare or maybe something else? Yes, we do. We use Cloudflare and we love it. I think Cloudflare has done a fantastic job of uh, getting ahead of the curve in terms of many of the features that users need when they're doing distribution of, um, uh, of static sites. They've also taken the lead when thinking about questions like edge computing that matter a lot. So Cloudflare is one of those things where um, users don't need to, you don't know you need it until you actually need it. Um, and I think it's one of the pieces of infrastructure in the internet that um, if you can make it invisible to your end user, it's great. Devs should definitely use Cloudflare um, when they're setting up new web applications, um, or if not Cloudflare, one of the uh, equivalent tools offered by everybody else. But it makes a huge difference uh, in terms of your ability to manage um, subdomains, to keep your user apps up, um, even when you get traffic surges, and then to do things like DDoS protection, um, which are things that you don't really want to learn about um, in the middle of a crisis. <laughs> They're things you want to have taken care of for you. So 
Um, I love Cloudflare for all three of those things. Um, it's the default that we use for managing our own uh, users' apps. It's included um, in the offering we give to our users, so um, we're big fans of it. Uh, it also does some things that people don't really know about, like you know, domain registration and, and updating, um, which is a really nice feature, um, and we, we love using it for that as well. Yeah, I remember that about a year ago, they mentioned they were going to have like an early access about that, about you can register domains basically at cost, like no markup at all. But when I, when I looked at it back then, they, they were missing one feature and that was just like email forwarding. Do they have that now or is that still on the horizon? Yeah, um, so I don't think they have email forwarding. I don't know. Um, but I think that their assumption must be that if you're using Cloudflare, you're probably somebody who knows how to tweak the DNS uh, settings of your domain to hook up a uh, mail forwarding system anyway. Um, certainly that's been the case for us too. Yeah, Cloudflare is one of those services where it's almost silly at how good they are, right? Like everything you can possibly want in that type of service they give you. But at the same time, I am so skeptical of using it because just from like a moral perspective, right? It's like, not moral, but it's weird to know that that much of the internet traffic goes through one single entity. Like I get worried when I see numbers like, well, I don't know what their numbers are, but like imagine if 30 or 50% of the internet goes to that one place, it's like suddenly like half the internet could be technically regulated and you like, you would never know. Do you ever worry about things like that at night or no? No, uh, quite honestly, I don't. <laughs> and uh, part of the reason is this. Um, I think that uh, even if there are these kind of hidden monopolies that show up um, as certain tools become very popular, um, the underlying protocols are not actually... Uh, something that's that's very easy to lock down, right? So let's say tomorrow Cloudflare decides that they're going to become uh, evil and uh, filter out a whole bunch of traffic that they consider to be objectionable for whatever reason. Um, okay, well, um, our code doesn't live on Cloudflare. Um, there are lots of other CDNs out there. It wouldn't take that much work for us to move, move over to a different piece of infrastructure. And I think uh, given that our attachment to tools like this is predicated on our love for the product and not for our uh, uh, sort of hard dependency on what they what they give us. Uh, we're not locked in, and I think we've seen in the past that people do walk away from from tools that uh, tend to do things that are morally objectionable. Uh, it's one of the, the the powers we have as as engineers, right? So uh, I don't worry too much about this. Um, you know, I think that it's uh, it's great that they've got a tool like this coming together and. Uh, uh, if things change, um, of course, we would we would uh, we would look at alternatives. Uh, you know, not just for you know uh, reasons about ethics, but you know, maybe one day they have a um, a protracted period of downtime that you know they're not able to recover from. So those are always things you want to worry about. Right. So the moral of the story is basically use it, enjoy it, worry about it when it's an actual problem, because switching over isn't really too too crazy. Yeah, I think that's a great piece of advice for any tool in your piece, in your overall chain, right? Uh, if you build an app that ultimately gets successful or important, you always want to make sure that no one piece of your infrastructure or your build tool chain is the main risk to you. Um, you always want to have some, some backups in mind. Right. Now, speaking of tools here, we didn't really get a chance to talk about Terraform yet. Uh, do you have this even provisioning the resources on Heroku as well? Because... I think they do have a provider for that. Uh, so yeah, we we use Terraform to provision everything, um, uh, including inside Heroku. It's it's not that complicated. Uh, you just you know have the infrastructure as code set up, and uh, 
once you've gotten it debugged, um, we run the Terraform file every time that we provision new Heroku instances. It works pretty well. Yeah, Terraform is one of those tools where once I discovered it, like a year and a half ago, roughly, it was like complete mind-blowing experience. Like I used Ansible for a really long time to configure servers, like, you know, six, seven years ago. I never really thought to really automate the infrastructure side of things. And when I did, it was just like, wow, I've been missing out on some good stuff. <laughs> yeah, Terraform's great. We've been using it for about two years now. Uh, I think the big advantage is the fact that we can move stacks from uh, one cloud computing provider to another. Um, there are more sophisticated use cases people have come up with, but uh, we haven't needed to touch on those just yet. It's enough that our users can move from cloud to cloud using the code they've generated, which is what we really want and what we really care about. Right. So from the end user's point of view then, when they create a new application, let's say they decide that they want to pick AWS as a backend, are you actually providing them uh, Terraform files like as, as a part of their project? Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's built-in Terraform files directly inside the project. Uh, if you don't like your provider, go in and tweak that Terraform file, and you can uh, move to the next provider uh, using examples that are widely available. Um, and yeah, it works out of the box. So we've had a bunch of customers who are still using Crowdbotics today. Um, they build the thing out, run it on Heroku to prototype it, and then once it is ready to go, move it over to AWS uh, for um, particular features they need over there, uh, or move it to GCP um, for particular features they need over there. Amazing. And then just to be explicit here, like you're actually using them for your own infrastructure as well, right? Uh, we use Heroku for our own infrastructure. We use Terraform for our own infrastructure as well. Um, and we use AWS uh, in a small number of places for our own infrastructure. Right. So on your side with the Terraform, uh, probably not going to know like a number of lines of code or, you know, modules that you have. But I mean, do you have a substantial amount of Terraform code written? No, we don't have that much. Um, our infrastructure for provisioning... Uh, new instances is important uh, and is, is used uh, quite a bit. Um, but it's less important for us to have that inside Terraform uh, than it is uh, for us to have our customers able to move clouds. That was really our main, our main motivation. Um, so uh, we may do more with Terraform in the future, but right now I think it's just something that's nice to offer to people who um, are looking to have some form of portability out of the gate. Okay. So maybe now we can talk a little bit about your deployment process. So let's say one of your developers or you're hacking away on the project in development, like what's the step-by-step -step to get that code up and running in production? Okay, good question. So um, everything is CI/CD oriented here. And I think that most teams should actually, um, like for serious projects, uh, consider doing that uh, if they're not doing it right now. There's a lot to like about it there's a change in thinking you have to apply uh, when you go into that process to begin with. And we didn't start out um, in quite as efficient a model as we have today. Everything is uh, required to follow Git flow. So you have to work inside a feature branch. Uh, you have to be attacking a ticket that is inside the PM system. So uh, it's got to be a JIRA ticket uh, defined in there to prevent people from making random changes that have not been uh, sort of thought through in advance. Every change has to be reviewed. So you open a pull request against your feature branch into uh, develop. Um, develop is reviewed by somebody, or that PR is reviewed by somebody. Um, we are using uh, staging servers for um, each one of these feature branches to demonstrate the feature. So if you're making a change and somebody wants to go click around, they don't have to download it and run it locally. They can just 
look at the staging server for that specific branch and see the change in practice. We also have pretty strict requirements about documenting what you're doing in the pull request so that somebody can uh, understand the change really easily at the gate. Okay, once it passes that process, um, merge and develop. Develop state uh, syncs into the staging server um, that has uh, a relatively high latency um, and lifetime. And then periodically, not on a daily schedule, but basically as needed. Um, usually it's multiple times per week. That get mer gets merged to master, and master syncs up against production. Um, in the middle, it's Circle CI that's doing the processing. So Circle is running automated tests, doing the bundling, and then actually doing the deployment over to Heroku. Um, so yeah, it's a 12-factor app in the sense that the entire state is contained in the code base. So um, the data is in the database, and um, there's no there's no state that uh, lives just in the server's memory or anything. Okay, so when it came to choosing a Circle CI, did you look at any alternatives? Like, I'm not really sure if you're using like GitHub or GitLab. Was there something that like, well, I guess since you started it three and a half years ago, something like GitHub Actions wasn't around. Was that kind of just the case here? or? So GitHub Actions wasn't around. Um, it is a direct sync between uh, GitHub and uh, Heroku. So there's a web, or, and, excuse me, in Circle. So there is a webhook that tracks the actual state. So when something is merged in, it's instantaneous, that it fires off the Circle process the build process and the push. Um, GitHub Actions didn't exist when we started this thing. We've looked at using it. Someday we might, but um, it's new. So, you know, it wasn't available to us when we started the project, and there's not enough of a case that we should go in and, and change it just yet. Yeah, no. I'm a big fan of CircleCI. Pretty cool service. Not affiliated. They're not a sponsor. I just think it's a great, like, you know, it doesn't matter what Git provider you're using. It just works with all of them. Yeah, it's fantastic for that purpose. I agree. On the other side, we've got... There's always a tension between how fast people can build and like the desire to avoid errors in production. Having code review is a must. Having automated testing is a must. Um, and I think being able to deploy really quickly is also a must. Like you want a, a process that syncs up very directly. Um, so Circle makes that pretty easy. Heroku CI was also good at that. Um, and I can't speak to GitHub Actions because I haven't used it. Right. Now going back to those uh, staging servers that get spun up for each pull request, how do you have those getting created? Because I would imagine it's like, you know, some subdomain, like a hidden one or whatever, you know, some weird randomish name that just gets spun up and they can access that? Yeah, so we didn't invent this model, um, but it's actually a really, it's becoming a popular model nowadays. Um, I think the first people to do this were, was the team at, at Rainforest QA. Um, the tool is called Fourchettes, and it's since become a standard offering inside Heroku. Um, I think they call them feature branch servers. Um, or uh, branch servers. Um, it's, uh, it's a little expensive because you are spinning up a lot of instances. Um, they're temporary short-lived instances with a finite lifetime, but it basically uh, uh, gets spun up at the point when you generate a pull request for the first time and has a finite lifetime. It's spun up in isolation. We are using um, a fixture system to generate fixture data in there too. So we we, tear, we build it up and then tear it down um, every time, which sounds like a lot, but it's being done by script, so it's okay. And it, it actually is really empowering, right, to be able to look at somebody's code interactively in an actual environment um, while you're playing with their system. It's pretty cool. Uh, it's uh, a, a very uh, efficient way for us to check what people have built. You can also send people who are not engineers to go and like play with the system, just like a product person um, 
to give you feedback, which is also powerful. Um, so there's a lot to like about that approach. I don't know how common it is elsewhere, but um, uh, we've really liked it. Yeah. You know, I've heard about that in my travels a few times, but definitely more on the uncommon side, but also like super confidence building, right? It's like being able to look at that site versus just looking at a pull request code. Big difference on whether or not you can guess if something's going to work. Totally. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot to like about it. Yeah. So part of your deploy process, do you just run database migrations on every deploy and kind of just let Django worry about, you know, item potency? So I've never spoken about uh, this as a killer feature of Django, but it is a killer feature of Django that migrations are uh, are handled for you. Um, and it actually makes the, the model building process and the model generation code that we've created uh, work really well. In particular, it's something that I think is going to be a... Uh, an ask from a lot of devs and a lot of different uh, platforms in the future. But yeah, that's that's how we do it. Um, you know, we we let uh, Django worry about migrations, and uh, it's very, very rare that we've seen any issues ever come up as a result of that. Okay, so just to be explicit then, as part of your CI CD pipeline process, you do run database migrations on every deploy. Whether or not, you know, something is applied, Django takes care of that for you? Yep, that's correct. Cool. And then uh, one last thing about your deployment process. How do you deal with secret management? So I know Heroku has like some CLI tool, but do you do anything extra beyond that? Okay, this is an awesome question because nobody ever asks about this and it turns out to be supremely important when you're doing secure development uh, in cloud environments. Um, so Crowdbotics has its own system that we have built uh, for secure secret management. We use a, uh, a feature called Heroku Vault uh, so that we never see our user secrets, and uh, we never have to touch them. And, uh, you know, if desired, you can guarantee a very strong level of security uh, separation uh, around your, uh, uh, your secrets. So um, the way that we have implemented this, uh, a user goes into the SPA, client side, they enter in the secrets that they want to store, uh, those secrets uh, get encrypted, stashed in a Roku vault, and then at compile time, um, the pipeline will go and retrieve those variables and inject them into the runtime so that uh, Django can go and grab those as needed. Um, so that's awesome because it's vitally important that, you know, we have customers in banking, in healthcare, like people who have built some pretty serious heavy-duty products that have uh, uh, real uh, security needs attached to them, it's super important that we don't have the ability to go in um, and get those secrets or touch those secrets. So um, the vault made that possible. Um, the fact that it's Heroku's vault as opposed to a product we built in-house um, means that there's a high degree of confidence users can have in the actual security of the system. But I think the approach we took was pretty cool to like go and grab those and inject those into the runtime uh, during the CI process. Um, it's, uh, that was a fun one to, to figure out. Yeah, very cool. Now, when it comes to like setting up new secrets for your specific application, not like your client's stuff, uh, do you have like a subset of developers that have access or do you give that access to all developers? Yeah, good question. So for our own secrets for the company itself, um, meaning our own uh, secure credentials, uh, we maintain the same kind of separation um, that uh, I think most teams do, which is uh, you've got a limited number of people who have access. Um, you dole out additional access as needed. 
uh, for specific items, and then you routinely review who has been able to get access, who has who is actually the person who's in need of that access, and uh, you filter out the the stuff that uh, uh, you don't want people to have access to. So a very limited number of people have access to the important stuff. Um, and I think that's good practice in general when building applications, um, especially ones that have uh, any sort of scale. Yeah, for sure. Although you may run into the situation where you have like the bus factor if it's only one person who has those keys, but it sounds like in your case you have a couple maybe? We have at least uh, two for any given item. So uh, there's not really a bus factor attached here, but there is a... Uh, uh, there is a, uh, a low number of people who can grab stuff. So now that we have the deploy process uh, set away here, maybe we can talk a little bit about your disaster recovery plan. So you mentioned that Heroku does have you know, a pretty good uh, backup strategy, but do you want to go maybe into a little bit more detail about how that works and maybe also how you might backup user uploaded files? Yeah, sure thing. So all our user uploaded files live inside S3. Um, they've got their own backup system. Um, that's running basically uh, with a redundant S3 instance or set of instances um, with some uh, periodic refresh. Um, for our own uh, app, we run backups multiple times per day um, on an automated basis. Uh, it's just cloning it into a second Postgres instance and uh, Heroku makes that really easy, uh, which is nice. Um, for our users' applications, those applications have their own update schedules depending on what users uh, have paid for on their hosted plans here. So sometimes uh, users have multiple updates per day, uh, multiple backups per day. Some have once every day, and some, if they're on the free plan, uh, don't actually get backups at all, um, which is fine for, for folks who are hobbyists in most cases. Right. So was there ever a time where you had to use your own backups that needed to be restored? Or do you actually do that like on a regular basis to, to, just to check that behavior? No, we've never had to restore from backups here at this company. Uh, in my last company, I have had to, in an identical setup, uh, restore from backups due to an inadvertent large-scale deletion of stuff. So um, we do test the systems to make sure that they work and that we can recover. Um, we've done it in staging environments quite routinely, um, but uh, we've never had to do a production uh, uh, recovery uh, in this setting. And I'll tell you that because I've done this before in production, I know it's not pleasant. And uh, we, we take steps to make sure data loss is not super easy. Right. Do you maybe want to go over like the TLDR and like what the restore process would look like in that staging environment? Like what steps need to happen to go from like, uh-oh, everything's broken to, oh yeah, cool, we just restored from two hours ago? Well, it's hard because you're, you're going back in time. And the, the real problem is that you need to separate out valid transactions that have occurred in the database since then from invalid transactions. Um, you know, the dumb recovery model is you just copy your last good database back in and lose the transactions. That's rarely acceptable from a business use case perspective. Um, most of the time, you're going to have to do some manual triage. Um, so the steps that we've taken here are, yeah, you save the, the known broken database. You copy the old one back in um, so that you're kind of back up and running. You identify the diff, meaning the uh, user actions that were taken or the transactions that occurred on the database between those two instances. And then you do a little bit of hopefully script-driven or SQL-driven uh, query work to isolate the changes that you think were correct that should have been retained. Then you make a migration that fast-forwards your old database back into the new state, and then you apply those migrations. So that process works. It's not fun because there are any number of reasons that a database 
uh, could have some number of uh, invalid transactions put in and scripting those out is is annoying. Right. And I guess in like the most catastrophic cases, like if it came to billing data, I guess the data is always there in the Stripe side. But of course, that would just be the billing data by itself. Um, yeah, you can always recover from other sources of truth as an alternative, but that's not preferable for a few reasons. Yeah, for sure. So going back to like disaster recovery, do you have anything set up at the Heroku level or somewhere else to get alarms set up? Like, you know, if like the page becomes unresponsive, then someone gets notified or does Heroku uh, do anything special about that for you? So Sentry is the one that's telling us when stuff is going wrong. Um, we get notified uh, right now in Slack in a variety of, of contexts. Um, one is uh, excessive CPU utilization, server load, basically, uh, memory outages, and then uh, really the highest priority stuff is user-generated errors, right? 500s uh, or like, you know, uh, other, other types of issues that come up um, because all of those are things that a user needs to be advised about and uh, that we need to correct for at the end of the day. Right. Now, you mentioned Slack there. Do you also have that hooked up to CircleCI? So if something happens that's bad, uh, someone will get notified on Slack about their pull request status or whatever? We have GitHub integration directly, but... Um, when somebody uh, has a, uh, a PR that fails, uh, most people are hanging out inside GitHub and we'll see that happen. Um, so, you know, they're checking back to see when their feature is going to go out and go live. Um, and we discuss it at standups too. So um, I think that there is a trade-off here between how frequently you want to be notified inside uh, a messaging system like Slack and how urgent the thing is. If somebody's build failed during a, uh, a PR, yeah, that's not something you need to know about right away. Uh, if somebody is hitting 500s or if the app is down, if prod is down, yeah, we need to know about that instantly and, and get people on that. Um, or if users, users' apps are down, we want to hear about that right away too. So um, those are all ca cases that we uh, uh, care about a lot. Right, so you're keeping your notifications down to things that actually like really matter from a business perspective, not from like a coding like dev environment perspective. Yeah, and, and you know, I think it's also, we have so many options for where we get information right now um, during our workday. I don't think it's nice to make that choice for people. I think people should get to opt in for stuff that's not business critical. Um, there's no need to pollute the communication work stream with too many notifications that uh, don't matter. Um, for stuff that's uh, code-oriented, that stuff can live inside GitHub, and uh, I think everyone's really comfortable with using you know, checking in on Git a few times a, a day to, uh, you know, see what the status is on stuff. Right. Totally agreed. I'm one of those people like, you know, if you're just setting up CI on a new project or something, you know, back in the day, it was always like, fix Travis, maybe fix Travis, got Travis to be fixed. Nope, didn't have Travis to be fixed. And you're making all these commit messages. It's like almost adding like insult to injury to go back to your inbox and see like 17 failures. It's like, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. So what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are for building this project and deploying this platform? Okay. Um, I didn't mention this, but there was a six-month period in the beginning uh, of the project where our development was really slow because I thought it would be fun and useful to learn how to do uh, serverless development to get this project off the ground. And th those are six months lost, right? Um, I was I had a Django instance running to handle like business critical stuff, but I said, well, you know, this is going to be legacy very soon. Serverless is the future, and I made the classic mistake that I think many developers make, which is um, 
for an important uh, important business critical activity, um, trying to, to learn a new technology for it instead of doing the stuff that I knew really well and was familiar with. So ultimately we axed the serverless stuff entirely and you know, uh, as I started to get more momentum, tripled down on the Django stuff that we were building, uh, which was totally the right call. So that's the first lesson. Like for stuff that matters, uh, use technology you know, don't try and learn something brand new on an important, uh, important build. I think the second piece I'll mention is, um, and I see this a lot from users who are building stuff on Crowdbotics, um, it's actually really important to build less and launch sooner. Um, a lot of projects don't finish because the, the, the period between when you have the concept in your mind and you're motivated and the point when you actually see something, however small, on the web and put it in front of a user is so large that nobody ends up actually getting to the point of finishing it. And I hate to see that happen because um, I think that uh, with all the great ideas people have and with all the stuff people can build, um, I really want to see more stuff uh, get shipped, um, even if it's small and early, uh, as opposed to dying on the vine. Um, and I think that, you know, it's, that matches up with our product philosophy too, right? Which is to get people from zero to one really quickly. Um, so I hope people, uh, you know, take those two lessons to heart. Um, build with stuff that you know and build less. And then, of course, I, I am also uh, a big advocate of using using tools that make your life faster as a developer. So uh, that includes some of the stuff we've talked about today. It also includes, uh, you know, using tools like ours that let you, you know, generate code without, without writing so much code. Um, and I think that that approach is, uh, is like the future of development. Like, Nine times out of ten, when I am looking at problems that don't look like they are unusual, they're just new to me, I say there's got to be a solution out there, a library that does this. Let me see what other people have done to solve this problem. And nine times out of ten, you'll find that, yeah, somebody else has thought about this and can give you some like starter code, a library, maybe even a standardized complete solution for how to solve it, which is a powerful thing to be able to tap into. That's all very, very great advice. And the second one really hit home for me because it's so easy to get just hung up on like the new hotness or like, oh, well, I'm going to build something complex. I might as well learn a new tech because now's a great time to do it. And then you fast forward a year working a couple hours on it, you know, here and there. And it's like it hasn't shipped yet. Yeah, that's so, so easy to fall into that. No question. And I'm excited to see that, uh, you know, we see a lot of good ideas come out there. And uh, the fact that we can tell people the stack that we're using, uh, React and Django, um, what we call the, the React, uh, the, the RAD stack, uh, is like, it's standard, it's good. Like, don't think about learning too much other stuff. If you know Django really well, it's an easy stack for you to build stuff that can be production grade without needing to, to pick up a whole new set of skills and without needing to get into unfamiliar technical territory. Um, and, it, you know, it's the same stack that, like, big teams use, too. So um, uh, it's there's a lot to love about it. Right. Well, when it comes to the A in that RAD stack, is that just APIs then or API? Yeah, it's APIs. Uh, React APIs in Django or React Native APIs in Django. That's the RAD stack. Um, it's the same stack as, as notably Instagram. So uh, it's there's a lot, to, a lot to love about it. Right. That's actually the first time I've ever heard that acronym before. So now I know. Oh, well, uh, yeah, glad to, glad to get more people thinking about it. <laughs> and on that note, uh, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks so much, Nick. And uh, uh, yeah, it was great talking with you. Yep. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Anything yeah. Like that? 
Absolutely. So um, we publish a lot of stuff on the Crowdbotics blog, technical articles, how-tos. Um, uh, so check it out, blog.crowdbotics.com. Uh, you can also, um, if you're listening to the podcast, go spin up an app uh, for free on crowdbotics.com. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, we always love hearing from users and we love user feedback. So uh, that's great to see too. And if you build something cool on Crowdbotics, uh, you know, uh, or just in Django uh, in general, you know, let us know. We're always excited to uh, see and support new projects in this space. Awesome. Yeah, I'll make sure to drop a couple of links there in the show notes. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.